0: Hey, fellow cycling family and friends, I just want to tell you how gorgeous you are today, and I hope you have the most amazing week. Now, it's December, and I hope you have your gear list ready and sent off to Santa. You're a woman, this is totally for you. The four-week cycling skills workshop benefits all women. These skills can be implemented immediately on the bike and trainer, cycling outside, indoor cycling, on a spin bike or peloton. All your current frustrations and questions will be answered, guaranteed. If you're interested in joining me, don't wait another moment. With this link, you can get started at the beginning of each month. I know you're trying to decide whether or not to check out the four week cycling skills workshop for women, but I don't blame you. There are so many other online cycling training platforms that offer cycling routes and training sessions, but they're but here's what makes my 4 Week Cycling Skills Workshop different. First of all, it's taught by someone who's not just starting out, but actually has is pretty experienced. I've been working with three clients in my cycling club, CycleFit Chicks, all the way to Canadian National Female Cyclists. And I continuously update my coaching tactics to help beginner to advanced cyclists level up with these cycling techniques hardly anyone is talking about. Secondly, the four-week cycling skills workshop for women is so much more. A lot of times there are online cycling training programs that teach you how to train intensely, but but actually don't help you develop the fundamental cycling skills and techniques such as gear management, hill climbing, strength, power and speed, and nutritional timing in order to effectively become a faster, fitter and more efficient cyclist and well-rounded athlete. And also, there are very few courses about cycling that actually teach you how to develop a smooth, efficient puddle stroke. The four-week cycling skills workshop for women aims to fill both these gaps in in cycling training not to mention the workshop provides the recordings of the explanations demonstrations plus homework in addition you will gain access to a library of over a hundred strength training workouts to help you level up and that is all on top of the core curriculum you already get when you join the workshop so it's safe to say I'm delivering incredible results coaching over a thousand female cyclists through my cycling club and now it's even more exciting to impact more female cyclists globally through my four-week cycling skills workshop for women. You can't go wrong when you join a workshop developed by women for women. It's time to level up and remove the frustrations. So if you're ready to join, just click the link that you see and secure your spot today in one of the next four week cycling skills workshops for women's sessions. Now before the new year with um, this amazing deal a 25, 25% off until December 31st. Limited spots available. Don't wait another minute. Click the link and roll today and I can't wait to see you on the inside. Welcome to Secrets from the Saddle podcast. I'm Sylvie Daewoo, your host, fellow cyclist, bike Club founder, cycling coach, All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Secrets from the Saddle, all things cycling podcast with your host, Sylvie Daou, here in Ottawa, Canada. And I have a really special and interesting individual for you, Robert Mayowski. No, Mayanski. Mayanski. I tell you guys, this is not my forte, but I'm super excited to have him here. Not only because he's sitting in Oregon, He's straight across the country for me, but he is also an avid cyclist and a lawyer. But before we bring Rob out, he we're going to give a little background on his on him first with regards to cycling. So he is a two-time U.S. Uh, racing cyclist and a U.S. national champion. In 1988, he attended the Summer Olympics held in Seoul, Korea, where he placed fourth in individual road race. Since then, he's retired from professional cycling in 93 and is now an attorney based in Portland, Oregon, with a practice in bicycle law. So boys and girls, I don't know if you know a lawyer who, if you're a cyclist who deals specifically with cycling, now you do. He has also uh, wrote a couple books. So Legally Speaking is a national column on cycling law. And between 2002 and 2009, he has also written Bicycling and the Law, Your Rights as a Cyclist. And I was just looking, you can go pick this up on Amazon in the US um, and a book which is a book on bicycle law published in 2007. He's also written in our favorite Velo News and Cycling Magazine. So if you get those, his column is Legally Speaking. So welcome, Rob, to the podcast. I'm really excited. I've got some questions for you. Hi.
1: Great. Well, I'm happy to be here. Let's shoot, shoot your questions over and we'll see what it can
2: do.
0: All right. Perfect. So I always love to get started with your story on how you got into cycling because you became you know you were you cycled at the Olympic you competed for the U.S. so how did you get there let's hear a little background
1: all right well let's see uh I always liked doing outdoor sports and um I was first drawn to ski racing and uh kind of like downhill have, yeah alpine racing you know
0: alpine racing
1: we didn't win we didn't, the downhill event is not too big in Wisconsin because the hills are so tiny, but they do have it. We call it Alpine slalom giant slalom and downhill at the time. Right. And yeah. I was, I was, you know, over the moon for it. I, I didn't have any money I had to wait tables or at that point it was a dishwasher to buy a season's pass. Mm-hmm. And it was my dream to become a ski racer and a competitive one and I I think after my freshman year, I found out there was this place called Mount Hood in Oregon where you could ski year-round. I was on the the collegiate team at Wisconsin, and a guy brought a little brochure in with a picture of Mount Hood, and he said, you should go out here this summer. And so I did. I came out here, hitchhiked out to Mount Hood, Oregon, and the U.S. ski team was there. And uh, I noticed they were dry land training with bikes. Oh, you know, they were riding up to the lodge and, and I didn't really know much about road cycling. I don't think I'd ever seen an adult ride a road cycling bike in my town ever. Um, we, you know, like kids anywhere we rode bikes everywhere, but right. um, not, not 10 speeds, not the fancy ones. So like, I think at the time it had been the Schwinn Latour, which were sold in lawnmower shops at the time. And, uh, they had the dealership. So you'd go in and you'd see this really expensive Latour and, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe it was a thousand dollars, which was a a tremendous amount of money.
0: Yeah,
1: I didn't get that one. I got like you know the one below. You got the
0: banana seat one next to it.
1: <laughs> I already had that in my garage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all had banana seat bikes. Yay!
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I know. There, you can still find them on uh, online now. But so I, I, I quickly, I started really putting a lot of effort into the dry land. And when I got back to Wisconsin, one of my teammates was a bicycle racer. And uh, he said, "I'll take you out riding." And I saw him out in the group with all those guys with their kits on. And I waved at him with my hoodie on, and they just did not acknowledge me whatsoever. And a couple weeks later, he said, "Hey, let's go for a ride." And he just—you know—we were pretty competitive on the ski team, so he just took off, and I just chased him. And I thought, "I am never doing this again," but I am going to chase him. (laughs) We did that for a couple weeks, right? So um, I thought this is not as much fun. You know, my lungs were turned inside out, and I was. I thought, this is, I just didn't want to embarrass myself. Um, and then that next spring, I was in Milwaukee, unrelated to bike racing, and I saw there was a big bike race down on the lakefront, and there he was in the breakaway, and he won the race, and the mm-hmm. light bulb went on, because I had started to beat him in some of the sprints. And I thought, he's oh. top category, and he's winning bike races. I thought he was just average, and, he was, and I was really bad. So I started my race at that point
0: i'm a little better than i think
1: well more like uh i can do this i could actually be in the race and have fun in a in a competition instead of just you know showing up and then they all ride away from you
2: <laughs>
1: yeah although that almost happened anyway as it turns out but uh, yeah <laughs> and so you start at the bottom in the u.s i'm sure it's the same in canada they have categories mm-hmm. i think they start out as fives now but we started out as fours and yeah. then threes and then twos then ones and then pros So that's, that's how I got into it. And I found I was much better at that than skiing. And so I stuck with it.
0: And I guess being in Oregon, you can probably ski year round or no down uh, road cycle year round.
1: Well, I didn't move out here. I still lived back east. I I, in the Midwest, I should say I just came. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't make it back out here until 2000. Uh, I went to law school out here. But I didn't I didn't move out here officially until 20 years ago. So
0: okay so how did you get discovered to be on the olympic team uh
1: well it's not a discovery so much as a a competition you just sort of move your way up i think really the first steps were at the time there was a guy named eddie b who's kind of famous uh coach from poland that kind of took over the us coaching and so we had a lot of eastern european type coaches some of which had no english and we had their way of doing things which you know, they were the best at the time, besides pros in Europe, the Eastern Bloc. You know, they had yeah. all the science behind, yeah, yeah. The, Russians, the East Germans, the Poles, the Czechs. They were really, they were professionals, basically, even though they were they were under a communist regime. So they couldn't be professionals yeah. at the time, but they were like professionals, and we had to race against them as amateurs. So their coach came over, and we started using their techniques and training styles, which I mean, one of the best things is they would, you know, they trained in ice cold weather in Eastern Europe. And so they, they would have hot tea sweetened with honey and would stop the middle of these freezing rides. And we'd all power down hot tea to get our core warmed up. And, um, you, even one of the things they would have us do, if you're really cold, is you get off and run along the side of your bike, which
2: doesn't
0: (laughs) save your toes from freezing. Right. They start moving everything. Oh my gosh.
1: So what happened is they they would have uh, they would invite people that had gotten decent results to come to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado, and we'd all race each other all winter. And then you Whoa. eventually they might see you, and they need to fill out a team to go to a race somewhere like Belgium or Italy, you know, like a third mm-hmm. kind of a event. And I got those kinds of invitations after that first year, and I and I had some good results. In Europe, and they had a point system, and all of a sudden, I was on the USA team. It was kind of a, all of a sudden, I was in the room with a bunch of guys that wouldn't acknowledge me a couple weeks earlier, you know. Like hey, quite a <laughs> at the time, <laughs> but that doesn't last. You you end up you know people are people. You end up being on the right. team, and you know they're all friends of mine to this day. Wow, that's awesome. So, so then you headed to
0: your two-time u.s olympic race champ champ
1: no, no i went to the i was two times in the olympics so the first okay. time was in korea in 1988
0: right and then 92
1: and 92 so in 88 okay. I, I made the winning break away and i finished fourth just a couple mm. inches out of the medal and then i went back four years later and i, I lance armstrong was on that team and oh. I also made the winning break but i uh, had had food poisoning and didn't really, uh, finish the, I finished, but I didn't finish strongly. I had a good chance to win the race. Unfortunately it was in a small group, but I, uh, I had gotten bad food poisoning three days before the race and I hadn't really recovered.
2: So,
0: yeah, I have a race kind of like that. You never forget those. Do you, I don't yeah. know what I ate for breakfast, but it didn't agree with me. Yeah. <laughs> Just like yeah. stop you in your tracks. You're like, God,
2: it does, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, it does. So then you retired. Is that when you went to law school or were you practicing law or going to school all uh, during that time?
1: I was, when I made the U.S. team, I was still in college and I was just taking classes in the fall. And so it took me a long, long time to graduate. And I did. <laughs> I raced a pretty solid. Like,
0: I raced, but I went to school, but I raced more.
1: Yeah, well, what happens is you go in the fall term, and then when the season starts in January, I would take off, so it took a long time to finish, and then I did about a decade of racing, <laughs> one year of coaching, you know, as a director, oh, okay. and then and then I went directly to law school, and um, then moved out to Oregon, and I've been out here ever since after law school.
0: So you figured the coaching wasn't a good career, you had to go back to
1: well, it wasn't coaching, like, uh, training athletes. It was, like, being the manager of a team, an actual team. Oh, okay.
0: A lot of drive.
1: Oh, yeah. Right. You're like,
0: so, okay, but, I'm going to school now.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I Well, what happened was I wanted to make the money without having, you know, all the pressure of racing anymore. But then I found out that it was actually better to be a racer than actually running the team. You know, because a racer, mm-hmm. you just, you ride your bike and you travel a mm-hmm. lot. As the manager, you're you're never done working. There's always something to do. There's quite a bit of uh, detail involved. Right, yeah,
0: you got to keep a lot of sponsors happy. I would imagine. Yeah,
1: yeah, and a lot of find people. them. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> All right, so you're off to law school, and and is this where you decided that you're going to specialize in bicycle law? Because I think that's, I don't know why I think that's fascinating, but you you I've just it's not something that I've heard of because there's a lot of other types of lawyers, right? And maybe somebody might work with that kind of specialty group, right? But uh, as cyclists, uh, well, as our as cycling community grows and grows, um, is that what made you get into that special specialty as a as a lawyer?
1: Well, it was uh, probably a number of issues that all kind of came together. One is I saw what the work life of a lawyer was after years of just riding my bike and being a selfish athlete. And I found out what it's to be like to be in the same seat from eight in the morning until five at night. And I literally couldn't do it. I My first job had uh, the offices above a little canal where they rented kayaks. Oh, and oh yeah. I was in this, uh, you know, the staff liked to have it about 68 degrees and outside I could see all the tan skinned people doing Eskimo rolls on their kayaks and splashing. And I thought, what choices have I made in my life? What am I doing? So I only lasted about a month and a half at that job. I I had to get out and I thought, well, I, I need to make a living and I want to be involved with sports and I have a law degree now. And so... Um, I had been used as an expert in a legal case for bicycling, so a motorist had, uh, actually this case was a pothole, a really dangerous pothole had developed and the city wouldn't fix it and they knew about it and they wouldn't fix it and this, this cyclist got injured quite seriously and his lawyer was suing the university for this dangerous hole. And, uh, you know, during the depositions where they interview the client about what happened, he had said, yeah, he had loosened his grip as he went into the pothole. And the lawyer on the other side tried to make hay about that saying, well, you didn't have a good grip on your handlebars. Perhaps that's why you crashed. And so the lawyer knew me and he said, you know, I need someone to come in and talk about bike handling because, you know, you as a cyclist know sometimes when you're gonna hit a little ridge or something, you kind of do, you have a firm grip, but you have a loose grip. You know, where you're know, you not gonna let the bars leave your hand, but you're not gonna <laughs> grip them so hard. You're, you're gonna use your arms like suspension. Exactly. And so they needed someone to say that to explain to the fact finder, which is a jury, that no, in fact, what he had done was a normal way of riding a bike. And since I was an expert at riding a bike, I was allowed to give testimony and so that opened my eyes to the fact that we do get injured as cyclists. And unfortunately, the more serious ones are on the roadways where you know, we share those, those public ways, those commons that belong to all of us with 4,000, 5,000 pound vehicles, with people piloting them with cell phones and TVs and kids in the back and drinks. And so it's a, it's, it's, it's a convergence of a lot of dangerous things unnecessarily dangerous, especially when I got into the practice, no one had cell phones really, but that's made it much worse. So I'm kind of jumping ahead on how the practice works, but that opened my eyes. And so I hung a shingle, as they say, about the law profession, meaning I put a sign up and said, I'm a bicycle attorney. And I started writing ah. started writing a column for Velo News, which was a racing journal, as you, you referenced. Yeah. It.
0: Do you still write that? Because I was going to ask you, if you got so since February 2015, are you back at writing
1: a column I do. for Velo News? I do submit um, several a year, you know, about five okay. or columns. In fact, I have one coming in soon about insurance. And then I'll have one right after that about uh, what we call conspicuity, which is essentially uh, the, a big word for being seen, how conspicuous you are on the road. In other words, light. how
0: visible you are, basically. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and, yeah. and the waning sunlight in the northern hemisphere, something to uh-huh. think about, and um, particularly in the next month or two where the sun is lower on the horizon and there's lots of bright when you have a sunny day. There's bright and yeah. then dark, and it's very, uh-huh. very difficult to see everything, and cars can miss you. So, you know, daylight, riding lights is an option, this kind of a thing. So that'll be my next call. Right.
0: Oh, very cool. Um, yeah, so if you can i'm gonna look for that because i get velo news Uh, now that i know i'll be paying more attention and i always make sure that i'm super i have this brig bright orange helmet and i've got like our jerseys are orange not orange like yellow and pink and blue and so a lot of people like them because they're very visible um and i always try to be as visible as possible i was also very aware and making eye contact with vehicles I don't live in the city anymore but I don't know sometimes the country can just be as dangerous as the city um you know be biking out in the back roads by yourself yeah so you just have to yeah
1: cycling is still a very safe activity when compared to mm-hmm. sports but you know our our efforts I know. To make it really safe because if it's human error and it's avoidable you know like drivers watching the road yeah where they're going i mean that's the mm-hmm. big crux of our effort uh hands free t- laws and you know the there's an attorney that's done a lot of work on that in canada named pat brown he he's had the vulnerable user laws passed and uh you know oh, stricter great. penalties for violations of cell phone personal device rules and that makes a big difference um there's there's some hope that the public will understand. And with the advent of this e-bike wave, a lot more people maybe that never had been out on the road, vulnerable on a small vehicle, see, oh, now I get why why, why they want us. you know, these cyclists have a beef occasionally with the way we drive. So I'm hopeful that, that that's going to change sort of the atmosphere. Um, the more people that ride, the safer it is.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, a couple of things that have been coming out here um, or just made notice is that um, cars are getting bigger. So that means that, you know, how you had the lower, smaller cars where the, the, the windows were kind of at shoulder, you know, like waist height, so you could actually see. Now we're just the trucks are like the vehicles are getting bigger. And somebody have made mention of that. And also um, uh, hybrid cars that are very quiet. And you can't hear them approaching a cycle you know as you're riding like you can't hear them approaching because they're so you know they're very very quiet those two things have people have made mention about lately that uh, they've noticed there's those big changes
2: yeah that's true um
1: you know the roads the roads are kind of built the ways that we traveled around for a long time and they're not always designed as safely as they can be. And there's a lot of changes in that regard too, especially where I live in Portland, there's yeah. kind of a renowned infrastructure for cycling here. You can pretty much get anywhere on a bike in a protected lane and they call them protected, but they're not protected. There's just a stripe of white paint there. So you have to keep that in mind, but there are some protected bike lanes where there's a curb protecting it. And then in other places you ride in traffic, we have a thing called Chero's and I'm sure you have them in Canada as well. And it's a place, uh, they have like a Chevron symbol and it indicates that this is a shared road and that cyclists can take the center of the lane and go, you know, at the speed that they're welcome. It's generally neighborhoods, you know, where there's another option for the motorist just a block away. So then you, um, you know, you can't get sideswiped if you're in the middle of the lane. And these are low speed, you know, like 20, 25 mile an hour zones.
0: So I had a couple questions here because, um, all right. So I mentioned that you have the book. So if anybody's looking for the book, uh, cycling and the law, find it in Amazon, but, um, have you worked on a super controversial law lately that you're trying to pass? I'm just,
2: this is just mm-hmm.
0: some of the questions that I've.
2: Sure. Well, I would
1: say an example that might, there's, there's a couple that over the last, let's say, they're not super recent, but in the last half a decade um, that come to mind. One is called Vulnerable User Laws, and VRU. And these were modeled basically after the kind of a European way, where uh, some of the burden in some of the European countries where cycling is very popular is put on the driver. In other words, if a cyclist, if you're, if you're riding a bike and you get knocked over, especially if you get injured and you're not really aware of where you are, or what's happening, the motorist will give a report to the police officer. And a lot of times it's a self-serving kind of a report. Well, I was just driving the speed limit and the cyclist veered in front of me, that kind of thing. In Europe, the burden was on the driver to explain why did you hit this, this cyclist? In the United States and, and Canada as well the burden is on the person that gets hit has to prove their case you know I have to show so if I get hit by a car I have the burden to go to his insurance company and show that he he violated my um my rights with due care and caused my injuries so so the vulnerable user laws um they're in maybe half a dozen states now in the United States they the first one was here in Oregon and it It essentially made it more of a punishment to hit a vulnerable road user and a vulnerable road user could be someone riding a horse, a person walking along the side of the road, a cyclist, a skateboarder, rollerblader. We don't have a seatbelt. We don't have airbags. We don't have a steel frame around us. We're vulnerable. So you have to give more due care. So there was an effort there to try to make things safer by letting motorists know there are graver consequences for injuring one of us. It's kind of a mixed bag in how well it works. In other words, does your next driver down the road see a cyclist and think, oh, I could get in big trouble if I hit them. You would hope that there'd be enough compassion for a fellow human to realize, I don't want to injure this person. But there's this thing that happens when you're in a car, you're separated. It's like, they're the other, we're the drivers, we're in the cars, we're in a hurry to get to our next appointment and our, you know, to get to Starbucks, to get to the market, to pick up the kids. And there's somebody in my way right now. And so there's this sort of antagonism that develops on the roadways. And so that was one example. Um, another, that's probably a lot more interesting to your listeners is the, the Idaho, rules um so uh in the early 80s idaho became the first state to allow cyclists to roll stop signs and it's called the it's the idaho stop and we (laughs) we, we, we Uh, idaho
0: bicycle stop or just idaho stop
1: yeah um (laughs) it's it's kind of like well I'm not sure what the choice of verbiage was, but essentially what it says is you can treat a stop sign like a yield sign, which is what cyclists did anyhow, right? So you come to a four-way stop out on some country roads and there isn't anyone from miles away. You come to a complete stop, look around and then accelerate. No, you're going to roll right through. You're essentially using it as a yield sign. Yeah. And so they've renamed it stop as yield, meaning a stop sign is now treated as a yield sign. And Is this
0: everywhere or just no, in the country, it's, <laughs> like countryside, uh,
1: countryside? No, it's like everywhere. Not. It's everywhere. It's in the whole state of Oregon. It's, I think it's in Colorado now. It's in Idaho still because it was quite successful, actually. Oh. And it's a, it's a, great, it's a great way. It, 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 it takes into account that cyclists don't have engines besides our own human effort, that uh-huh. we're not going to crush someone if we mess up, that if we get hit, it's our fault typically and so yeah. you know you can't get a ticket for not coming to a complete stop at a stop sign when there's no one at any crossroad or anywhere near you the rule is you have to yield to anyone in the intersection so you can't come rolling up and you know dive by a pedestrian you can't steal the right away from a motorist that's already been waiting at the stop sign yeah. but if there's no one there you can safely roll the stop sign so that's 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 a really uh, you know, because what happens is occasionally police officers will pull someone over in New York City that ran a stop sign when there's nobody around. Then the court system has to deal with that. And, and you know, it's not a big nuisance to the society and it's not a danger to society. So that's a really exciting kind of change in the way. Um, I like S-I-C- that rule. <laughs> just
0: bring it over to Canada.
1: <laughs> well, there have been efforts to bring Idaho stop to Canada, most definitely.
0: So maybe it's just up to change it to like Ottawa. Idaho sounds a lot. Ottawa stop? No, I
2: don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So those are two
1: controls for sure. Um, And, you know, stricter penalties for uh, using cell phones. That's really the big threat. People, I mean, I've kind of.
0: What kind of rules do you guys have around that?
1: You, they're they're you can't use them at they're all.
0: Everything they're no different.
1: Devices are allowed unless you know by your work requires it, and so everyone's like, well, my boss might call, so that counts. No, it has to be. You know, an official duty where you're in a vehicle and you have a communication device, like a police officer, a fire truck, uh, emergency vehicles. I don't know what the full list is, but you're not going to use that as an excuse. So they're they're quite expensive tickets. Um, I noticed that people kind of flout it. To be honest, uh, I live on the street when I sit on the front porch sometimes and I'll watch four or five cars in a row come by w- looking at their lap the full duration of the view past my house they didn't look up one time so <laughs> I, I, I I don't know that we're having any luck in separating people from you know their screens at this point but that it's mm-hmm. it's life-changing if you hit and injure someone doing that um, yeah you know there can be crime criminal charges um you can get bigger fines and then you have to deal with the whole insurance issue you know you've injured somebody you have to pay for their damages that's essentially what happens and that's the lion's share of our work is helping Mm -hmm. people get damages for their losses as a result of someone's negligence people say Mm -hmm. it's an accident it was just an accident an accident means you can't help it you could help keeping your eyes on the road instead of on your cell phone so That's one of the things we have to do uh, in in the court system occasionally because there's a disagreement about how it happened.
2: And that's that's the lion's share of our work.
0: Okay, so I guess that would go along with my next question which is the most recent law that you have passed to for bike safety in Oregon, I guess. those two will probably go hand in hand. All right. Now let's talk about, um, we have now, I know you said you had some stuff that you wanted to share from a coach's perspective because you did spend some time and oh, totally like, what are you doing right now as a cyclist? I know you've been like in law for the last, uh, you know, 13 years, but what have you been doing Your for on the cycling side?
1: Um, well, it's been more like 23 years, but... Um, 23
2: I, years, guy. I'm a
1: cyclist. I, I Fortunately, I live living in Portland. And in fact, I was, I was commenting on this last night. I have a... I live on a little bit of a hill, but you can roll right into the ground level of my home so I can ride a bike literally into my house. So I have... I leave my car parked and I drive everywhere. I ride my bike everywhere for almost every single task that I do. I'm, I need to take on my dog's ride on my basket. My my puppies. Were no. raised, yeah. They were raised. They were raised in a basket with a harness with a leash. And um, oh my. I take them, I, I grocery shop on a bike. I, you know, the pharmacy is right around the corner the bank mm-hmm. grocery store, coffee shops, restaurants, the park for the dogs. So everything I can do by bike. So I'm i I'm a city biker and I've, I I raised my daughter here in this environment and you can imagine how you feel about having your child out in traffic in a busy area where people aren't paying attention. So I developed a system for her to ride in a way where I don't ever leave myself vulnerable to getting hit. And you might think, how can you possibly do that? But Okay, you
0: you have to talk about that. What is this? We all, a lot of us have kids, multiple kids.
1: Well, I mean, I, I only had one and she followed me around and I taught her on the, on the on the road, like what drivers are going to do at every scenario, not to be in a situation where we could get hit from behind. She knows, uh, she knew to come to an intersection, whether there was cross traffic. I'll give you an example, and this doesn't yeah. fit on the bike, but if you watch people walk at a crosswalk and they get the walk signal and they mm-hmm. just walk out, they don't turn around and look over the left shoulder to see if there's a driver. Coming on another road with a green light, that's going to make a right. They think, oh, those. Yeah. Well, thirty people a year get killed just in my town walking. So my daughter, I watched her at school downtown. She was the only child when, like, sixth grade. She didn't know I was there. The light turned. They all just like lemmings walked out, and she was the only one that stopped and looked at the street. You know where the cars were flying down from the side to see if, in fact, it was clear. That's essentially that kind of awareness is what I taught her on her bicycle. We use mirrors, which is, you know, considered very uncool among the racing set, and uh, lights and bike paths and charrows, roads that you can ride on, and you can get where you wanna get and you don't really leave yourself vulnerable. There's always a chance something can go wrong, but that's true when we're in our vehicles buckled in, that's true in life in general. So, uh, you know, it's the art of urban riding essentially, and it's that, that's, that's what I taught her. And then the other part of cycling I do is I'm, I've been a road cyclist ever since I stopped racing and I just go out and it's my meditation. As you know, as an athlete, there's times when you get out on the road and you're breathing and all your problems seem to just, uh, come into focus and you can, you can handle it, you know, and it's your, it's your, uh. It's your salvation, it's your antidepressant, it's your uh, anti-anxiety, all in one. So, absolutely, that's... And and just recently, um, we just bought a cabin in the mountains and I've been getting into mountain biking for the first time, really, first time. You're
0: gonna get into gravel.
1: That's, we live on a gravel road and we've been doing a lot of gravel riding. And I prefer the mountain bike trails. It's a little bit more... Uh, you know exciting going around the corners and you know
0: well it's kind of like if you i mean you could definitely ride your mountain bike on a gravel road.
2: that's what we I mean, do you don't really. a gravel
0: bike. but you know the the big like i've been feeling the big draw to that gravel movement and i try i'm like try to hold hold myself back but it's just getting too big mm-hmm. and so i found myself getting a old steel uh, Bianchi to ride mm. that was made, that was converted into a gravel bike.
2: Sounds so, good. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't made
0: a
1: dump myself. I'm just using my mountain bike or my road bike.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like you've got lots of uh, places to explore there, anyways. So,
2: sure.
1: not a big uh,
0: How old is your daughter?
1: She's 23.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, right. well. So, is she following in your footsteps?
1: She's a great cyclist, but she's not a competitive cyclist and has no interest in it. Um, She's more of a rock climber and a hiker, and she's kind of a workout nut. She definitely has that part of my history where she just loves exercise and movement, but she's not shown any interest in racing, which is fine with me. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think, but she never really wanted to do that. She would be quite good, actually. She's quite powerful, but it's not her cup of to you know test herself against other people. She doesn't need that. She just does it for her own enjoyment. So I can't really see why that's a bad way to approach it as well. Well
0: as long as she's staying healthy. And the law side you yeah. she liking that or she no she kind... graduated
1: last year and I don't know where she's going to take her, you know, her, <laughs> her degree and what she's going to do. You know, she's in that stage as I was I discovered cycling bike racing at a kind of an older age, you know, Mm -hmm. when I was on the U S team, none of the guys on the team had been to college because they were all superstar juniors and they had the race right into their early twenties. I came in, in my early twenties with just, you know, one year of college left. (laughs) So that's not helpful. So they're letting me know that something's afoot, but,
0: On the road
2: could be anything.
0: Well, that's okay, we all know everybody's at home these days. <laughs> I like, it. I just like <laughs> my kids come home about half an hour, so that's why <laughs> I, bu- I booked these just before, you know. So, now there was one thing that I was looking on your like bicyclelaw.com website everybody should go check that out um and you're talking about helmets are they really useful
2: are they not hmm.
1: well it's, kind of, it's a subject that I you know I <laughs> uh, what did you read I'm not certain what you saw well
0: it was just i uh I can't remember it was one of your drop down menus and your uh was it I just wrote down
2: helmets well that's i you
1: know they're not required by law in oregon if you're under 16 you have to wear a helmet they're not required by law otherwise um they don't have a lot of bearing on your legal case in other words if you're driving and you run through a red light you hit me the fact that i have or don't have a helmet is immaterial right it's
2: just safety
1: it's 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 interesting that one of the things you hear if you've ever had a controversy or a little um, contra temp with a motorist, they may mention that somebody has or doesn't have a helmet. It's, it has no bearing on what's happened. But um, I wear a helmet most of the time. When I'm riding in the neighborhood, I don't wear one just to the grocery store and around the corner. Um, you know, I think people should use whatever safety devices they want to use to keep themselves safe. I, I'm certainly not. Going to tell anyone what to wear or what not to wear. Um, I raced with a helmet. That that helmet technology. When I raced, when I went to the Olympics, <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: we used a yeah. hairnet.
0: Let's yeah, let's talk about that helmet technology back then.
1: <laughs> so we, we used hairnets, like they look like wrestling helmets.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: so uh, now, now the, you know, then the hard shell came, and now they have, as you know, I they have t- they have helmets that. Are incredibly uh, advanced in technology and actually save your brain. So I, I think they're a good thing to wear. There's a couple companies that have specialized on the way the helmet breaks down and lessens your concussion and protects your head. Yeah, that's a good thing. And oh, then, of course, mountain biking, you're flying by all kinds of f- fixed objects, branches, limbs, where rocks. i Rocks. big rocks. Yes. So, you know. That you're going to be better off with a helmet than without i'm not sure i'm not sure what the column was you know i've got a lot of writers on there so we we post other people as well
2: oh
0: i see okay so i thought it was uh like something like a part of uh you know part of your law like it was uh, as a discussion piece like mm-hmm. is it really viable or not but i always you know like if you're going to get hip i mean i suppose it's always good to have it on if you're going to If you're in a big accident I don't think you know you're probably going to die from your bodily injuries
1: it's true well you know when when I first started racing you know they, they did professionals didn't wear helmets at all and uh now it's become so common you know you watch the races in Europe and the spectators all have helmets and every racer wears helmets so it's it's a safety item protective gear that has become completely the norm from, from non-existing basically at the beginning of my career. So I've watched the change and, you know, the statistics haven't shown that it's been that much of a difference in terms of casualty, but uh, if you are got to ram your head into the side of a car with glass, I think you're going to want to have a helmet rather than not. Um, yeah. But, you know, honestly, we try not to talk about all the hazards of cycling because there's this impression that it is extremely dangerous. But in terms of how it ranks with other sports, it's pretty safe. It's right around like where tennis is, you know, it's true. It's absolutely true. When you talk about the kinds of injuries you can get doing all kinds of sports, surfing, basketball, you know, our injuries can be serious, but... uh, if you're a safe rider and you pick safe roads and you have safety equipment on, it's a, it's a pretty good sport for staying alive and staying healthy. We don't want to scare people off the road. And as I say, the more people that ride, the safer it gets statistically for everyone. So we want people riding. And with the advent of electric bikes, there's a whole class of people that maybe didn't have the wind power or the gumption to get out that are now out on two wheels, and especially where we, where I'm living in the in the Columbia River Gorge, there's an old railroad that, that went through the mountain through these tunnels, and they've turned it into a paved place for cyclists, mm-hmm. and they rent electric bikes. So I'm constantly being passed by people that are, you know, <laughs> they're my just sitting
0: there. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Right. They zoom right by and they're getting a good workout because they can push as hard as they want while they're doing it. And so it's getting them out. And they're not the best bike handlers. And so the motorists have to give them a little more room. And so everybody's getting a little bit more of a familiarity with two wheels on the road. So it's getting
0: Yeah, yeah, there is that. And I I noticed a huge influx of new right uh, new cyclists in the last 18 months. Specifically, when COVID hit, um, a massive amount, and that was, it is good. But then it was like you had so many new people on the road, new to cycling, that like you said, this, the bike handling skills, uh, common knowledge, and you know how to conduct yourself on on uh, multi use paths. Right? These aren't bike paths, um, and the road was kind of scary, but
1: yeah. <laughs> That's true. It really comes up as if you're in the old class of riders, uh, I guess we describe as roadies, you know, kind of like mammals, middle-aged men in Lycra, you know, this, (laughs) this ilk of, you know, 30, 40, 50 year old men and women that are really hardcore road cyclists. Um, they have group rides and there's this etiquette about how you ride in the group and you share mm-hmm. the pool and how you handle your bike as you come through the, the pace line and, you know, the way you treat everyone and the way you ride next to them. And you get some of these newer riders that have the physical strength and the to get out there, but they don't have the subtlety. You know, like, for instance, if you see the mm-hmm. rider in front of you touch their brakes you, put, you might lift your finger up to your brake caliper, but not sure you need to hit your brake or not. A new mm-hmm. rider might see that slam on their brake, causing the rider behind them to have serious problems. So um, there's, there's an etiquette and a style and a nuance of group riding that takes practice. It takes coaching and, and advice. And, and some of the newer riders would just like go, especially during the Lance Armstrong era, all these kind of type A aggressive, physically strong people that were coming into the sport, ready to go at it, but didn't have any of the breaking or the etiquette about how you, you know, cooperate. But that those, yeah. those years are behind us, but I, I, I'm sure that always happens. You know, there's an introduction to a new sport, whether it's surfing and figuring out what the rules of the reef are and the beach or-
2: part
0: over there and then you move-
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> out of my way that's my way yeah
0: that's right
1: I'm a local you
0: know to graduate to the big big boys uh, yeah. uh sir mentioning Lance Armstrong I noticed that he um did a little review for in our reviewer um a recommendation for your book he was oh, in there yeah oh,
1: he wrote the foreword for my book so yeah mm-hmm. That was quite a while ago. Yeah. I know it's
0: 2007. That's what I was like surfing through looking for stuff. I'm like, Oh
1: yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He did. We were friends, you know, he, I mean, we were friendly. He was, you know, the year he came to the U S team, I was the highest, I, you know, rank guy on the team. And, you know, he came in with a bunch of young guys and you know, they were, it was clear they were on their trajectory to be big stars, you know, whereas I was kind of at the top of my, you know, top of my career arc, which I was completely fine with. I was amazed I even went to the Olympics, you know, and so I wasn't, you know, I wasn't intimidated because he was 10 years younger and I came up in kind of a tough area and, you know, I didn't have the easiest of lives. So a guy like Lance was just like a, a kid to me. And, um, but, but, but the thing about bike racing is great is that the strongest guy doesn't always win or gal it's tactical, it's chess, it's psychology, it's how much you can suffer. It's how much, you know, you can race for a five hour race. And it all comes down to going over an overpass in the crosswind to who can go at 700 Watts the longest, you know, and a lot of that's mental. And with drafting, if you can catch the guy and then you got him. And if you got a better sprint, you're going to win the race. And I was a good sprinter. So I used to beat him quite often. And he, he, you know, we would train together and it was clear he was stronger and it didn't bother me at all. There were a lot of people that were stronger than me, but it's like a basketball game. It's who's going to sink the buckets, you know, it's who's got the day, you know? So that's what I loved about the sport is it's not like high jumping or long jumping or, you know a five mile run where the, you know, the best athlete just opens it up and you just hope to see you can get close to them. You might beat the best athlete in the world. If the best athlete in the world is in a bike race with you and they take off into a headwind with a mile to go and the second, third, and fourth best all chase them down and they pull you in their slipstream, you're going to pass all four at the line and you're the winner. So I love that aspect, the psychology, the chess, and so Lance and I, you know, I had a good record against him when he first showed up on the team, but it was clear, you know, for the racing in Europe and the tours and the, you know, the, the national tours that, they, that he and, and like the other guys of his generation were going to go in there and do big things. Dominate. And so yeah. I was, it didn't bother me. In fact, I was quite encouraging of it, you know. I, I yeah. knew the year left, and I had no interest in going to race in europe and right. so we didn't we didn't have that kind of um <laughs> we're you know we we had a decent friendship, so yeah, so he wrote a forward for me
0: well, that's kinda nice I too am most intrigued about the strategy that happens in the racing, and that's why I, I raced for eight years and uh i re- i would say I retired I stopped racing at two thousand and thirteen so Mm-hmm. eight years ago it's hard to believe but uh yeah I had so much fun like that's why I want to get I want to slowly get back at it um I know it's gonna it's a different era now different time different body and I have to treat it well
1: were you a <laughs> road racer
0: <laughs> yeah
1: yeah so what did you were you an all-rounder sprinter climber what was your era?
0: um I preferred I started mountain as a mountain biker and my favorite were crits criteriums like fast
2: sure
0: um like tight corners accelerations sprints things like that I wasn't that great on the road I suffered a whole lot but you know I was I would go out and I often raced by myself so I would because I didn't have a team so I would go out and I would try different things you know like my own break, you know, like, and, and this is what races is, are for, you know, not your a races, but like your B rate practice races. Like, what am I going to pull out today? What am I going to tr- practice today? You know, I'm all by myself. What have I got to lose? You know? Um, so I did a lot of that.
1: Yeah. That's uh, well, where I came up in racing in the Midwest, the criteriums were the thing, you know, mm-hmm. and it, it, and interestingly, it was 30 years ago the purses or the prize was pretty good. I mean, I had races where I won $3,000 or maybe I didn't win it, someone won it, but it was first place, which was, I mean, I could pay my rent for a year and huge crowds, you know, they were, they have them at night or they'd have them. um,
0: Oh, I've heard about your, I'm going to say American criterium, like series. I'm like, it was nothing like that in Canada. (laughs)
1: Well, it's the same dynamic, you know, um, you get out and <laughs> break and you share the wind with a couple of compatriots and then they become your, you know, your adversaries for the finish. And so it's all, all of the fun of road racing packed into action packed, fast cornering, you know, it, 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 it lends itself towards a more powerful rider, a bigger, stronger rider. But if you're super talented, you can do those like the Tour de France riders could ride a criterium and just probably pull away from people. Not, they probably wouldn't win because they don't have the power to win the sprints, but they could break away and just make you suffer the whole day. It's kind of like track racing, you know, as you know, yeah. which is also fun and really exciting. It just don't have enough tracks around the country and in Canada. Yeah. Um,
0: well, yeah, there's, uh, they're building one in Bromont, so just outside of Montreal.
1: Yeah. So indoor? Yeah.
0: Indoor, it will be. It's currently outdoor right now but they they have like um they're building a whole uh unit like a building around the the track so that's and that's the in the process right now so that's going to be nice cuz otherwise it's like 7 hours yeah to milton or london so now bring this to an end you mentioned that you had something you wanted to share
1: oh well you know when i when i was racing i as i as i kind of referenced you know i i kind of raced i guess they would call like i punched above my weight you know if you're talking about like a boxer in other words i could i could win on my day i could have a good result at the at a really high level and but but you know then there'd be you know long period of time where i i didn't have a chance i just wasn't i could feel physically i wasn't strong enough to win a race or whatever but on the days that i did do really well where i thought i have a chance to win this race um and then it come to a crucial point, and on some of the ones that were extremely hard, like a three-mile steep climb with very mm-hmm. high-level racers, there was this element of suffering, where I had to, you know, and we all experience it if you've done any kind of athletics at all and endurance stuff, uh, power stuff. You 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 have to go somewhere with your mind, with your thoughts, and I recognized yeah. that uh, part of what worked for me that made it easier for me was the breathing. You know, you're already taking the full lung full and you're, you're out of your head, you're present, right? You're, you're right on the edge. And then when the moment would come, you'd see maybe, you know, the very crest of the hill and maybe you weren't as strong as the other riders, but you realized if you could just stay with them over the hill, then you'd be okay. You'd have time to recover and there's the finish. Yeah. But so it all come down to this next 20 seconds after, you know, five hours of racing. And I would go as hard as I could. And then at some point you would think, it's not enough. I got to go a little bit harder or a little bit longer, but I, I I can't take it anymore. And then the question came to me, well, what, why can't you take it? What will happen? Will you die? I mean, what what's going to happen? And so, <laughs> I, so I, I I played with that a lot and I played with that. And what I recognized was that. If I could stay away from fear, if I could just go into almost like a meditative state, I could go much further and much harder and much deeper. So I started playing with it in my training, you know, because during the race, race, you know, you have so much going on, it's, it's hit or miss whether or not you'll pull it off. So I started training for it. And what I recognized early on was it had a lot to do with breathing had a lot to do with my operating system. What is my brain thinking about? So I ask people, when you're going as hard as you can, what's going on in your mind? And you get a, you get a lot of different answers. And it's very uh, illustrative of the, of the mindset. And so I worked on that, the psychology of it and the breathing.
2: Right. And yeah. I and
1: developed some techniques for it and um, you know, for controlling my breath. And, and you know what The mostly is similar to is holding your breath swimming underwater at the end of the day, you know, that the act of uh, at the pond or in the pool, you go under, you start going and you think I'll go to the other side and come back. Or for me, it was always in lakes. I want to see how far out I can go. If I can beat my, you know, my best friend or whatever. And you get to the point now, of course, there's a whole sport free diving where they've taken it a million miles that way. They can go six minutes. They can go down 300 feet. It's crazy. But at my time, I'm more interested in that moment where my own internal thoughts say okay that's enough and I thought well what if I go one more second and I found that I would relax that I would give into this this other kind of a fight or flight like I need air now to and it would lower my heart rate you know and so I started practicing that on my bike rides and I started practicing it and and that really I think was integral in my ability and the big race a couple times a year to do a huge event, you know, huge, huge event in my career to make a big effort that I, uh, wouldn't otherwise not be capable of. I didn't have the largest VO2, you know, I wasn't a freak of nature for aerobics, you know, I had to struggle and suffer. And so I spent a lot of time with that. And I think a lot of, uh, I think a lot of athletes that want to better their, uh, results overlook that area mental aspect of it they they think oh they what what kind of equipment does that person use and are they using a better gel than me or do they do four days in a row easy and then one day hard what's the secret and I find that for me it was more mental than it was any of those other variables
0: I think people are more now looking more on the mental side just from experience within my own club and, um, coaching women, like say we do hill repeats Thursday mornings. So I go out and I coach them. And a lot of them just like first, you know, they just have that, uh, Oh my gosh, a hill. I can't do it. I'm like, you have, you know, like mentally prepare yourself for it. And, it. and it, it is all mental. And before they know it, they're at the top. And then before they know it, they've done four more, and you just like, see, it, like you build up such a, and I, not a negative, but such a barrier against certain things that you put yourself out of the game. And I can, I can, I can understand where you're coming from because it's, i it's allowing yourself or pushing yourself to go that much further out of your comfort zone, or maybe it's not even a comfort zone anymore. Maybe you've, you're. You've moved into that very, very uncomfortable zone, but now this is just going further. And uh, Yeah, I think you are yeah. right.
1: So, so what, what I'm talking about with breath work, you can get to that, yeah. that, that, that that really horrible moment, you know, that scary moment much quicker. So what I did is I developed this this technique. I I nicknamed them Bodies, Bob's oxygen deprivation intervals. And what I would do is I would exhale all the hair out of all the air out of my lungs. And then I would pedal, you know, I would count a number of pedal strokes. And what happens is you go into kind of a fight or flight kind of a thing. You can do it on a trainer, you know, if you're worried about you know, passing out and falling down on the road, but that's you've
2: got to
0: be careful not to pass
1: out. <laughs> exactly, but of course, it's it's all the psychology. You think you're going to pass out, you're not going to pass out. You know, it's that's that's exactly what you have to face. Is this this? Uh, so, uh, as an example, um, we, we we're capable of doing things we don't think we can when we're really forced to do them. So, if you were afraid of snakes and you would never walk in your backyard in the evening in the deep grass. You just, you know, it's a phobia you have and you would never do it. If an ax murderer is running in the front door, you're going to run right through that grass. So you have the, to get to escape and it's an extreme silly example, but what it illustrates is that w- we have our minds mapped out of where we can go, where we can't, what we like, what we don't, but we don't always question those, you know, like, was that something I decided when I was six and I've always stayed away from it? You know, that scares me so I don't ever go there. And then we build a fence around that area and then we build a little zone around the fence. And if anyone tries to pulse over there, like, no, 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 I don't like that. I don't do that, you know? you So you re-examine some of your assumptions. And some of the assumptions around breathing and dealing with um, anaerobic pain are really kind of mapped out in our younger years. And so the breathing allowed me to, you know, come, come to an agreement about what I'm doing, what is my effort? If I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna keep it positive. I'm not gonna use fear. And so, and, and, and so I would get to those moments in a race, like I described earlier, where I knew it was just 20 more seconds. Of course, I'd already done that 10 times before, but now it's the last, last 20 seconds and my legs are screaming and my lungs are screaming and my ears, I mean, I, and, and so I learned to calm myself down. And then, and then I had a, I had a, like the Olympic trials. The last time I went to the Olympics, I, you know, Lance and a couple of the other guys, they knew they, they had to drop me up the climb the last time. And it was a hard, hard climb and they were way stronger than me, you know, but I just had trained and prepared myself for it the entire year for that moment. It's like, I knew it was coming and it did. And I, I to this day, I, I, I kind of, I kind of lifted out of my body. It was above my body you know you know because they dropped me on the steep climb and then they they were racing each other and they never looked back and I it was like I had to time it so that when I got out of the saddle I had to sprint for almost like two minutes to just catch them right at the crest and when I got there it was it was surreal it was like my hands felt like they were oversized and I you know it was just and um so I thought okay so I've learned how to push this to the limit now, you know, it's just, is this healthy for me? And so I decided that was pretty much the end of it. But when I think about what I was able to do in that day, and I think about other athletes that have good ability, and I wonder how much of that have they gotten into, you know, where their edge is. And I suspect a lot of people aren't anywhere near their edge. And so for me, that's a breathing helps learn where where that line is and to play with it.
0: Is that now in your group rides?
1: uh no well but you know what if I was, if <laughs> they're I was,
0: never that hard
1: <laughs> well honestly, you you never forget right like so my girlfriend uh got fourth in the iron man and she's done like 26 marathons and so we do gravel rides and it was like 100 this summer and we were at the top of a very steep hard climb and i thought ooh, this is gonna be rough for her because um she didn't have the right gearing or whatever and i just watched her she's just like she spent so much time in this this, this zone, internal zone, I was so impressed. And then I thought, well, of course she's done like 26 marathons, you know, where you hit the wall. It's familiar. Yeah. territory. So for me, if I'm on a group ride and I really want to push myself against some other middle-aged guy that's <laughs> kill myself from, for, for whatever reason, I have the ability to go for back. Coffee. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Or bragging rights or whatever. Yeah. I do have the ability to go back in that zone. Maybe not, you know, you never forget it. You know, it's, it's in your toolbox. So I think it's good to train. And what I like to do is think of a big event where I knew I'd have a really hard, difficult effort. And then I would think about that day. And then I would train and I would get it. I would go really hard and then I would go to the point where I couldn't take it. And I'd say, I'm just going to go four or five seconds. And that's all for today. You know, and each day I would build that up until the day of the event where I, when the Uh-oh. day and you just now it's real. You just go and you train your brain to do it and you don't you don't even question it. You just know it's the moment, you know,
0: I like that. I'm actually going to try that next year. Next year or maybe over the winter, Yeah, probably the winter is probably a good time to do that. So let's bring this to an end. I, this has been amazing. Thank you, Rob. I've really enjoyed talking to you about cycling and about law and now, you know, just bantering about, um, you know, bike racing, but where can people find you?
1: I am in Portland, Oregon. My website is bicyclelaw.com, And and uh, you know, there's a contact on there. I work with another firm that's in California, Washington, and Oregon, and we also work on cases across the country, uh, mm-hmm. not so much in Canada, but I, I mentioned there's Pat Brown. Um, he's an excellent attorney in Toronto, and he you can also find him online. He's a great resource. Okay.
0: Well, maybe yeah. we'll add his information just for our Canadian uh, listeners. So I know we have a huge listening base in the United States. So everybody, if uh, you need Rob's services, you know where to find him. And also don't forget to follow me on, where am I gonna send you? You can follow me on YouTube. That's where I put all my cycling um, information up. And also I have some free downloads at askcoachsylvie.com that are cycling related. So with that, thank you so much, everybody. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in for another amazing episode and uh thanks again rob it's been amazing thank you so much for spending this time with me on the secrets from the saddle podcast learning more about sighting people places and things that make cycling such an exciting sport i am so glad you stopped by today please leave me a review if you feel so moved to do so i would love to hear your feedback